Hello and welcome to Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, from classics to obscurities, from films set in 2022 that depicted a dystopian nightmare, to films set in 2022 that depicted a pleasant and peaceful world, from Soylent Green, The Purge, No No Escape, Alien Intruder, and Time Runner, to, uh, well I couldn't find any examples actually. Yeah, I was going to say, slim, slim pickings for nice peaceful 2022 movies. It's kind of good that everyone predicted it correctly. <laughs> they were all on the money. Yeah. yeah. By the end of the year, we will indeed be eating one another. Oh, I can't wait. My name is Michael Brooks. Uh, I'm here with my co host, Bill King, and Sam Oliver. Good afternoon. Hello. Um, nice to see you. Can't wait to eat, eat one or both of you at some point in the future. Yeah, this will descend into cannibalism any minute. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it it's what keeps uh, this fresh, the thought that at any moment... Yeah, it's why I keep coming yeah, back. Somebody might be like, oh, my arm's a bit sore today, and you're like, perfect, lop it off, get it on the grill. That's why we do very few in-person records. We just know the risk. That's why that live record that we did was so frantic, because Bill was so concerned about potential of getting eaten. <laughs> This is somehow we've managed to make it to fifty episodes. So this is yeah, <laughs> with premium We're... content like this, how could we not have made it to fifty episodes <laughs> for the next fifty? Well, we'll be a hundred. <laughs> So yeah, we're I think we yeah we're about a year old I think and fifty episodes so well done to us. This so for this special episode to commemorate this this fantastic occasion, we're looking back at uh, some of our favourite films, some of the films that we really like that are also this year celebrating their fiftieth uh, anniversary. So it's films from nineteen seventy two. A big year for film, as we've come to uh, kind of realise over the last kind of week or so of, of looking through and picking our films. So, you know, the big kind of blockbuster films of the year uh, included stuff like The Godfather, obviously, Cabaret, Last Tango in Paris, The Poseidon Adventure, The Candidate. But we're not going to be talking about any of those. No, uh, we are not going to be talking about The Godfather, which won uh, best best film at the Oscars that year. Well served already with other uh, things talking about the Godfather, and probably you know we shall talk about it in more depth, no doubt, in a later episode. But uh, so we're going to go for some more, some more choice cuts, some more obscure options for you. Before we do, Bill, I think you have some news. I do I do have some very important news? Um, so, gentlemen, do you want to try and guess? Which special celebrity guest surprised fans at recent screening of The Batman? I mean, my, my first and probably quite obvious guess would be The Bats himself, Robert Pattinson, but that feels too obvious, so I'm going to go for um, Michael Keaton, talking about how he was annoyed that people weren't seeing Ooh. the 1989 Batman. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, just turning up and going, my, my version's better. What about you, Mitch? What do you think? Yep. That guy, the little kind of weedy guy who played Robin in those shit films that George Clooney did in the 90s. Right, for a start, Chris O'Donnell was not a weed. He was <laughs> ripped to the Jesus. Like, I don't think you could call him a weed. You certainly wouldn't to his face. Oh, I'm Michael. misremembering. I'm misremembering. Yeah, you are, because he beat the crap out of those circus boys. So, yeah. I'd... <laughs> <laughs> no, the guy who plays Alfred. Oh right, okay, uh, Alfred Goff. <laughs> I think that was that his name. <laughs> um, no, Michael Goff. You both, yeah. you both, you both, really wrong. I suppose, lad, you were a little bit closer. Um, so the the denizens of a cinema in Austin, Texas, 
were surprised by an appearance of an actual bat. Man. <laughs> yeah, actual bat. There was an actual bat was flapping around the cinema. Um, wow. There's a video on Twitter. You can check it out. They're all quite surprised and it's birds and then the whole majesty of, oh my God, has this, what is actually happening here? There's actual <laughs> bats in the cinema um, takes over them. Um, we don't know whether it was a prank. We don't know whether it is a publicity uh, stunt. Um, it, mean, seems, it sounds very much like it. <laughs> well, I don't know. Everyone seems pretty panicked um, and then the staff of the cinema don't handle it particularly well. Um, but then it's also interesting when you watch the video, loads of people just calm and they're just like kind of just ignore it just keep watching the film because it's just a bad flapping round to be fair having worked in a cinema i think i would have no idea what to do if back in the day when i did work in a cinema somebody had said uh there's a bat let loose in screen four i i didn't have the training for that so i yeah. I, I i sympathize with these poor texan ushers that had to just kind of go like oh, i don't know just deal with it i guess it's it's 4d cinema it's 4D yeah cinema. just just stay quiet i mean you've got to sympathize with the penguin i mean he's been trying to be getting rid of you know batman for since the 40s and now these guys in the cinema are having the same thing so it's it is tough they are tough to get rid of as as i'm sure robert battinson proves but yeah um the bat was flapping around and um i think was dealt with humanely um nobody just pulled a gun out and started wildly <laughs> shooting into the air trying to get it down was this austin texas it was indeed yeah so that is yeah so i've been to austin texas and they have this thing where it's like a tourist attraction where every every night there's a bridge over over a river and it's a bat colony and like at dusk thousands and thousands i think there's like even might even millions of bats fly out for about half an hour and people gather and watch it and it's really incredible so maybe one of them got lost from there one of them would decide to go and see yeah. the cinema so wow austin Sorry, texas that... really is the modern day gotham bat, bat center that, that genuinely sounds like a super villain's plan to like release like you say they, they just fly around for half an hour and then they're all like right boys back in the, the bridge well they That's fly off somewhere world. else so they, they just fly off from the bridge yeah right to go commit crimes wow. To go, yeah, yeah. Uh, we will um, in our next episode be well. We're going to be bringing you a, a sort of short special bonus episode covering Batman in films. Uh, so look out for that uh, in the lead up to doing a normal episode where we'll be giving you our review of the Batman. So yeah, it'd be kind of cool if we could invite that bat from Austin, Texas, to sit in on the record. You know, he's he's watched a Batman. Yeah, um, just ask him what he thought about it. Did you enjoy it first time at the cinema? Did you enjoy it? Probably, I, I imagine that bat probably has a lot of media attention right now, so I doubt that we'd be able to wrangle it, but it's worth a try, I guess. We could get an interview, perhaps. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we're more likely to get an interview with that bat than anyone that's been involved in any Batman film ever made. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, especially after Michael slammed Chris O'Donnell. Right? Gonna... <laughs> Chris O'Donnell's yeah. out. Chris O'Donnell is locked in this morning, but he's not going to be now, is like, he? Don't no. worry. He's, he's hitting I was like, Chris, listen to the next episode, and you'll you'll realise that we're all such huge fans of you, but not anymore. Bloody hell. <laughs> Ruined that chance. Right, so uh, we are going to be picking... Uh, we've picked uh, th- three films each uh, from 1972, celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. So, Sam, you're going to go first. Tell us, what's your first, what's your first pick? So you uh, you mentioned up top, Michael, that obviously we're not covering the Oscar award-winning The Godfather because, let's face it, I think everyone and their fathers are going to be talking about The Godfather this year. Um, but the first one I have chosen is an Oscar award winner. Um, it won the uh, Best Foreign Film in 1972, and it's uh, Louis Brunel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. 
Um, so for those that you don't that don't know, um, Louis Brunel, a renowned Spanish filmmaker who kicked off his illustrious career as a key figure in the surrealist movement of the 1920s, uh, making films like Unchant. Sorry, there's a lot of French names I'm going to say that I'm going to absolutely butcher. So here's the first one. Um, making films like Un Chien and De Lou. I really tried on that one. Uh, which is the, for those of you who don't know, the silent short film where that person gets their eye sliced open. Oh, nice, um, yeah. It's the song that's also, the one that's name-checked in the Pixies song, Debaser. Uh, he also made the film L'Arge La d'Or, which whenever I say it, it sounds like I'm just saying Large Door. But it's a French film called, it's not called Large Door. Anyway, just after this, um, despite going on to make a whole host of incredible movies that span countries, genres, themes and styles, his films were always very, very distinctive. And this one, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, is no difference. And Ingmar Bergman famously said that Bunel nearly always makes Bunel films. So whether he's making Discreet Charm, Los Olvidados, Un Chien Andalou, Land Without Bread and Belle de Jour... They're all very, very different films, but they're unmistakably in his wonderful surrealist style. But what, I hear you cry, is the Oscar award-winning Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie all about? (laughs) So putting it very simply, it's a surreal, virtually plotless series of dreams centred around six middle-class people and their consistently interrupted attempts to have a meal together. The great thing about this film is that it's loads of different things at the same time without being any one of those things. It's a comedy of manners. It's a bedroom farce. It's a political satire. It's a gothic melodrama. It's a religious allegory. But at the end of the day, it's a really, really, really fun film. Um, I saw this in the cinema ages ago on its 40th. Oh my gosh, I saw this film 10 years ago. I'm so old. Um, Yeah, I saw this film on its 40th. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, guys. I might have to have a sit down. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm having a panic attack now. It's yeah. a minute. Yeah. Gosh, a whole a whole decade has literally I've blinked and it's gone. So yeah, I saw this film in the cinema on its fortieth. Oh god, its fortieth release. It's fifty. Anyway, can you have um, your breakdown off there? Just... <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, everyone. So I saw it in the cinema for its fortieth anniversary release, and didn't really know anything about it going in other than it being a Louis Brunel film, and it's just an absolute delight. It's so wacky and so surreal and just jumps around all over the place to the point where even if you don't really know exactly what's going on or what's happening the things that you're seeing and the kind of surreal comedy that's being played out in front of you is just eminently watchable it's such such a fun movie and genuinely genuinely funny so the interruptions to this elite ruling class dinner that they're trying to have get more and more surreal as the film goes on. And honestly, whilst I'd really like to sit here and just list all of the various things that happen, I think a lot of the film's comedy and enjoyment comes from the surprises. I remember as the film starts, you kind of go like, OK, this is going to happen and then this will happen. But Brunel fun- manages to find more and more extreme ways to interrupt this upper class dinner party to the point where it's still existing within this world that he's created but it's getting more and more ridiculous and over the top whilst I don't want to spoil any of the surprises that happen in the film I did find a really fun fact out about it that the movie includes three of Bunel's recurring dreams so he crafted three of the stories based around these recurring dreams he had which honestly sound very specific and also very terrifying Uh, so the first one was his dream of being on stage and forgetting his lines which We've all done GCSE drama here. We all know what that's like. That's a, a real, real fear. Um, a dream of meeting his dead cousin in the street and following him into a house full of cobwebs, which 
I can't say I've had that dream specifically. And finally, the dream of waking up to see his dead parents staring at him. And that's one of the great things about this movie that Brunel crafts is that he creates these things that on paper seem completely disconnected, discombobulated and completely surreal. But he puts together this really coherent product that whilst it is wacky and it's off the wall, it holds together really well as a piece of filmmaking. With that very pretentious sentence, I'm going to keep ploughing in to my pretensions here and really doff my pretentious hat. And I think the main thing that I love about this movie is that not only is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie a really sublime piece of surrealist art, it's also genuinely, genuinely funny. It's a really fun, fun comedy. And I think most films fall into either into one of those two camps. So they're either very surreal and kind of very arty and very worthy for being that or they're really funny comedies and again totally worth it for being that as well but I can think of very few movies that straddle that line so perfectly that kind of artsy and genuinely funny tightrope the only ones that spring to mind is a film that we talked about that you talked about Michael I think quite a while back um Vera Chitlova's 1966 movie Daisies does a really great job of being genuinely funny and genuinely arty And the other one that came to mind, and they can disagree with me on this, but I genuinely think another film that falls into that camp is uh, Team America, World Police, I think is a genuinely fantastic piece of art, as well as being a genuinely funny comedy. Um, Feel free to sound off at me in the comments, because that is a bold statement to make, but it just came to me in a dream, like Brunel. And I think Brunel would want me to make outrageous statements that came to me in the form of dreams. Uh, yeah, so Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is just a great surrealist comedy. And if that sounds like your piece of cake, you're going to be full by the end of it. Excellent. Um, I Yeah, I've not seen that. Um, I have seen a film that I think he made a couple of years before or after called The Phantom of Liberty, which sounds very similar. Similar sort of vignettes. Mm. But I have heard that The Discreet Life of the Bourgeoisie is one of Woody Allen's favourite films. So with your endorsement and his, I feel like I shall shortly check it out. <laughs> I'm honestly surprised, Michael, that if Woody Allen's already endorsed it, you've not already raced to your nearest blockbuster to rent it. <laughs> just, to be, just to be clear, it doesn't feature puppets then. It's not puppets, like... Because you've really thrown me off with Team America. No, no, no. It's not. Um, they're, they're, it's not made entirely with puppets. Um, yeah, sorry. Right, okay, that, that, okay. I, I should have clarified that. Um, yeah. But then neither is the film Daisies made entirely with puppets. Um, Thunderbirds is, and Captain Scarlet. Thunderbirds, yeah. It's not, it's not, not relevant to this. Great stuff. Right, well, that's one down. Bill, where are you going with your first film? Well, I'm going, you know, 50 years ago, um, but it doesn't shock me as much as it does, Sam, um, because I was prepared for that we were going to be talking about films that took, you know were made 50 years ago. It's the whole point of the podcast. I specifically wasn't prepared for to be talking about a film that I saw on its 40th anniversary, which is 10 years ago. So I'm having my own crisis about okay. a decade right, yeah, passing, okay. Bill. It's your own, yeah, you're having your own experience. I'm worried about my own passing. fading mortality. It's a big difference. Anyway, <laughs> move on. Okay, well, speaking of mortality, um, let's go on to the, uh, the Culpepper Cattle Company, um, which is directed by Dick Richards. That's a pretty funny name. Um, let's let's just move past that. Let's just move past that. Oh, cool. that's good. Yeah, and we get are we past it. Good. Um, I, I can mute, I can I can mute myself if I keep laughing. <laughs> um, and it stars Billy. Now now this is a funny name as well because it stars Billy Greenbush. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film you made up. But I've not heard of it. So 
<laughs> it's not a surrealist comedy, but I'm starting to think it could be. Um, and Gary Grimes, that's a normal name. Right, cool. We've passed the cast list. I won't mention any of them again. Um, so this is a, a Western. It's about a young man with dreams of being a cowboy who joins up with the uh, eponymous cattle company for a drive uh, across the plains. Um, now, I, like Sam, saw this many, many years ago when I was a child, um, but it doesn't shock me as much. And and this is this is a really I'm a big Western fan as you know, but this is a really really different kind of Western in that it's it's quite obsessively accurate um, and and very very realistic. And it was part of this you know this revisionist Western time. And it, it's so obsessively accurate that one of the things you start to note in it that they all have weird suntans. All the cast have weird suntans. In that back in the day in Western times, um, cowboys. Mainly kept their um, their sleeves down, so whenever they rolled them up, they would have white suntans. It was all about staying out of the sun as much as possible. That's why they wore the big hats. So they weren't actually as tanned as most westerns make out. And that is just one of the little little bits of detail you start to notice in this film. That why have they all got really white arms whenever they roll up the sleeves? And it turns out they've just done the research. The same with the facial hair. There is there is obsessively accurate facial hair what these blokes looked like some of them looked pretty funny back in the day the whole way it shot as well was quite groundbreaking and it was you know it's coming off this 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 um you know the, the bands of westerns when it was the 60s it was very bright this is this is shot in very 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 dusty sepia sort of tones and it wasn't even like the spaghetti westerns where again very harsh very bright this this was shot almost like it was going back to the old films of the you know 1920s trying to make it look grainy and dirty which is another thing i think is great when you start to get into this period of the 70s is the i think you can begin to see it in 72 films were really looking for this old worn used look weren't they um and and i i really love that that look um in in films and um, it's very simple story uh, it's a very simple coming of age story but it succinctly expresses one of the truths of the west was that it was unfair and unflinching. Um, all they're trying to do, this this cattle company, is drive the cattle across the plains, get some cows from point A to point B. Um, but others want to take the cattle, um, and that means they're forced to hire some unsavoury types to help protect them. And this is, again, more of the 70s cynicism um, in that the characters on the good team, some of them are absolute monsters, some of them are absolute pieces of shit, but it's one of the truths of the West was you had to throw in with these guys if you had a chance of, of staying alive and, and getting your business done. It's very, very brutal. It really gets across how in this world, one mistaken word can equal death. There's one scene which I found really terrifying and it, it scared me a little bit when I first watched it, but um, re-watching it, I, it still really hit me hard because it features a cowpoke accidentally calling another one a son of a bitch. Um, kind of offhand and the other cowport draws a gun on him and he says we're gonna have a gunfight the the cowport that said the offending words like i ain't no gunslinger i sorry i take it back i don't want this i've never been in a gunfight in my life but his assailant tells him there ain't no taking it back we're gonna throw down we're gonna have a gunfight it's kind of like you know being in a rowdy weatherspoons and you accidentally bump into a guy and you think oh god i don't want to get in a fight but in this one in this world you you get a belly full of lead um and it is it is it really gets that across that you had to be watching yourself every minute a joke can go badly wrong and this next second you're in a gunfight it's also 
quite funny um, and absurd too. Um, you have all these hard cowboys, but there's there's one scene, I think I've actually briefly talked about this on our worst bars section um, on the podcast when we talked about worst pubs. Um, it, it, you see a cowboy cussing himself for being too afraid during a game of uh, trying to hold your hand against the glass of a rattlesnake jar. Um, it, and it's an absolutely dreadful bar, but it, it's, it's very funny. There's also a scene with, uh, with a prostitute and the young man is too afraid to do anything with her, so they end up just bouncing on the bed to convince the cowboys listening outside that something uh, more more uh, carnal's going on inside. So there's these there's these quite funny, absurd little sweet moments, and then also it's kind of it's kind of crystallised in before a uh, gunfight, riders are bearing down on them. The uh, the group listens to a bunch of nearby preachers singing "Amazing Grace" before it descends into silent, and then before randomly for no apparent reason, all the waiting gunfires slowly just descend into laughter. They just catch each other's eyes and start laughing, um, and it's and then a huge gunfight takes place. It's crazy. It's but it really kind of gets across the adrenaline in their face, and you know you're one moment from death at all times, um, and it's absurd. We're fighting over a bunch of cows death's coming any moment and they just start laughing um also the ending of the film really veal- reveals its deeper themes of hypocrisy and pointlessness of uh, warring over land i won't um, go too deeply into the exactness of it but it, it really just shows how utterly pointless this all was and really serves to show how violent and stupid the west was this this isn't any grand fights over honor no one really learns anything there is just literally did we get the, point, the cows from point A to B? How many people died doing it? Did we make a profit from it? And that's, uh, yeah, the Cool Pepper Cattle Company, a really cynical um, look at the West from 1972. I feel like I had not heard of this movie until you said that you would be talking about it today. And I was just wondering, like, is it kind of like a bit of a forgotten Western? Is it a bit kind of like under the radar? Like, is because I, yeah... Like, where's it been? Definitely. Where's it been all yeah. my life? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, uh, uh, I'd say I'd say it's a hidden hidden gem um, because it's not, it's really not showy um, and it really doesn't have these archetypes, you know, I think we've talked about Westerns before and you'll have to stop me if we're going too long, but Westerns often have these archetypal heroes, don't they, and themes and, you know, the, the legend of the West. This really doesn't have that. It really is just, it's not even a man on a mission movie. Um, Mr. Culpepper himself is, he's not exactly dislikable, but he's just a businessman. He doesn't, he doesn't teach um, the young, the young, um, the young protagonist anything. He doesn't take him on as a fatherly figure. All the guys around him, they're just his mates, but you get the feeling that if he accidentally called one a son of a bitch, they'd shoot him. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't really ring true and it doesn't have these these moments where you just like kind of remember and it steps above. So I don't know. I think maybe it was too cynical for its own good. Um, and it and it kind of, as well as that, maybe gets cast aside as because it's such a simple plot of this, this simple coming of age story. Um, but yeah, I, I recommend people to try it out because it, it, I think it's really quite a refreshing look at it. And, um, and yeah, really, really enjoyable moments. Nice. And um, yeah, very, very good story. Very good indeed. Right. Well, uh, so we'll move on to my first choice now. So I am going to be talking about Solaris, the Soviet sci-fi action. Uh, action? <laughs> it most certainly is not. The Soviet um, sci-fi in action. Art House. Yeah. <laughs> it's no Star Wars, is it? Uh, art House, I meant to say, uh, film uh, from the uh, Moss Film Studio by Andrei Tarkovsky. It's his third film after Ivan's Childhood and Andrei Rublev, uh, and adapted from the novel by Stanislav Lem. 
Um, this is kind of often referred to um, and you know, including upon its release as the Russian 2001. And I don't think that's any exaggeration in terms of the quality, um, but uh, they are, they're certainly quite different films, both visually and, and thematically. Like all Tarkovsky's films, it's very long. It's 166 minutes. It's slow. It's ponderous. There's lots of Tarkovsky's characteristically stately long shots, breathtaking imagery and and philosophical themes to it as well. Uh, it won the Palm Door, which I like to think is a much better arbiter of taste and quality than the Oscars, where he was not even not even nominated in the best foreign language uh, category, uh, to which you uh, pick the winner. Sam. So the plot, I mean, it centres around a, a psychologist called Chris Kelvin, played by Donatas Banionis who is sent to a space station orbiting a mysterious planet known as Solaris. Uh, and he's intending to investigate what's happened to the crew who've all been, like they've all succumbed to these various emotional crises. But no sooner than he arrives, then he also starts to experience the same psychological phenomena. So tr- these things, these phenomena are, f- are triggered by the, f- by the idea that Solaris is this kind of conscious entity that's kind of manipulating and responding to those, this, those that are observing it. So he is then visited by uh, a, his wife who who died years before so it's it's this it's tremendously weighty film exploring the nature of consciousness and memory and grief and the transcendence of love i mean it is a, a love story at its at its heart which was like i say is makes it very very different to 2001 you know it's about the fundamental questions of, of human nature but in a and, and, and the human condition but in a setting out of space which is at the very frontier of, of human technological achievement and exploration there are so many wonderful images and sequences that are so evocative and memorable. There's too many you've mentioned, but to, to pick out a handful, so there's this brief moment where the characters start to experience weightlessness, um, and it's just it's done so well and so beautifully. I've just not seen anything like it in any other sci-fi film. Or when Tarkovsky's camera explores every inch of uh, Bruegel's painting, Hunters in the Snow, which I actually have right behind me on the wall, uh, interestingly enough. He, it's a kind of a, a quite an important painting in terms of the film. Or when the Chris, the character of Chris, returns home ostensibly, but there's this uncanny sense of things not being quite right or quite how they used to be. Um, and my favourite section, I mean, it's very early in the film where it's it's gone from this very very poised, very ethereal kind of outdoor setting to suddenly speeding through a hypermodern city expressway in a car. It's, it's simple and it's obviously quite dated now and in terms of its impact, but it's still really effective in terms of this lurching change of speed and, and, and tone. There's this typically brilliant score by Eduard Artemiev. This He uses kind of electronic reworking of a Bach organ piece. Um, and the rest of the film is kind of punctuated with these otherworldly white noise and ambient sounds. In terms of how it fits in with Tarkovsky's filmography, Although it's arguably his most famous film, I would suggest that it probably sits behind Andrei Rublev and Stalker, which is another strange sci-fi meditation on, on human nature. Um, but it is a masterpiece. And if you haven't seen it, see it on a big cinema screen if you can. But, you know, go in knowing that this is not going to be a fast-paced film with multiple you know, shots a minute. You know, you need to immerse yourself in Tarkovsky's world and his time his and his unrivaled filmmaking vision you know i i think he's he's well up there with kubrick as being a complete and utter visionary and you know a great example of the real potential of of of, of, of hard science fiction before before star wars infantilized it 
Oh my god! So they, I was just agreeing with him. So they, I was just uh, agreeing with everything he said, and then he just drops that. It's getting revved up to be like Michael. Very well put. I agree with all everything you've said. Well done. But now you can fuck off. Well, we'll just talk about Star Wars being a Western. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> but yeah, no, Solaris, mesmerizing, mesmerizing film. And as you say, like I think, I think the word immersive is is right. I think you just need to go in realizing much like the main character you're going to descend into the sort of this dreamlike state in outer space um but it's yes beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah and actually weirdly i like, think about because i watched it again recently knowing we were going to be talking about it and it's weird in that it is set in outer space but it uses none of like you can suspend your disbelief in it because it really isn't showy in the same way that like say 2001 is well, you know 2001 kind of yeah it looks dated now but it's not uh, not overly so. You could still, yeah, you know, the effects still stand up, but by being so restrained and, and not really leaning on the sort of technological aspect of it, Solaris still kind of, if you can immerse yourself, suspend your disbelief in the fact that you are on a space station, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Well, he's yeah, he's he's he done that on purpose, hasn't he? Because he's more bothered about the character and the the actual you know, the planet itself and things like that that they're using there. So um, yeah, it was a wise wise choice. <laughs> I feel like um, um, I'm exactly one of those people that you warned of watching Solaris, expecting a lot of action and a lot of shots per minute. Because I think this Solaris was the first Tarkovsky film I watched and I didn't have any expectation of what those sort of films would be like in a way. So I think it's a film that I watched years and years ago and I think was a bit left a bit cold by because I didn't quite like you said, immerse myself in it. But it's one of those films that having now watched other Tarkovsky films, I'm very keen to revisit. Cause I think the, <laughs> the me of 10 years ago that was watching discreet charm of the bourgeoisie didn't quite give himself wholeheartedly to Solaris and probably worse is a worse person as you can both attest to is a worse person for that. So it's, it's very, it's high up there of the films that I want to go back to as the wise old man I am now. I don't know if I like this old bitter Sam, but um, we'll see. Yeah, this is me now. No, I mean it's one that you need to go. Last words, I mean to immerse yourself in the cinema, so you're not going to be distracted. You know, have a nice bottle of wine to see you through the three-hour running time, and just <laughs> yeah, have a have a great time. Right, Sam, where are we going with your next choice? I'm talking about a film uh, by arguably one of my favourite directors, but a film that is one of those interesting ones. Of I'm sure you can both attest to this thing of when you see a film by a very renowned and very kind of like well-known, well-liked director that isn't one of their best films, you're overly harsh on it, more harsh than you would be if it was a film directed by some Tom, Dick or Harry that had been given it as a job. And this film is Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, a director that obviously needs no introduction, the master of suspense, uh, absolute force of filmmaking history, who's so influential that the, the term Hitchcockian that everyone knows the meaning of, even if they don't know that Hitchcock comes from his genre of cinema, his inimitable style. This film, towards the end of Hitchcock's career, this film was made eight years before his um, death at age 80. Um, and it's his second to last film, so he only had one more in him after this. And to be honest, it, this is probably his best of the latter day period of Hitchcock films. It's definitely loads better than the film Topaz that he made in 1969, which... So the plot of this is a classic Hitchcockian kind of plot. Um, a serial murderer is strangling women with a necktie around London, and the London police have a suspect, but it's the wrong man. It's got all the classic elements that you'd expect from this Hitchcockian film. Police, women, a man wrongly accused. It ticks all of the boxes. 
it's almost as though at this late stage in his career, Hitchcock's stopped bothering with any kind of subtlety and just wants to kind of churn out the films while they're being made. Like a lot of other Hitchcock films, it's based on a book. Uh, this one is based on a novel called Goodbye Piccadilly, Farewell Leicester Square by Arthur Laburn. And I mentioned in a joking manner about the idea that he's thrown all hints of subtlety out the window, but this genuinely is a film where I think Hitchcock does do away with a lot of the subtlety that he's had before. Uh, this is the only Hitchcock movie to carry an 18 certificate in the UK um, or receive an X rating in the US. So disturbing was the film that Hitchcock's own daughter, Patricia, would not allow her kids to see it for many, many years after its release. It's almost as though Hitchcock's got to this point in his career and is like, you know what, I'm sick of all this suggestion and all these kind of like allusions towards sex and violence. I'm just going to show you some boobs and some blood. Um, and it is, it is in that sense interesting because you're watching almost the films that Hitchcock could have done if he hadn't have done the things that he did to make it, it's some of the more kind of like sexually suggestive things from like north by northwest the train going into the tunnel at the very end all of this stuff's thrown out the window in favor of just sort of like showing you exactly what it is that he's trying to allude to which is interesting but it's also kind of not doesn't fit in with what you expect from hitchcock as a director that being said, though, there's some really cracking sequences in it. There's moments in the film that feel like they could be from any of those kind of like classic vintage Hitchcock films. There's a lengthy sequence with the killer trying to cover his tracks in a potato truck, trying to kind of undo this tangled web that he started weaving. And there's this incredibly well-held shot on a doorway whilst a murder is taking place elsewhere. And that there's these moments where you can feel like Hitchcock had a, it's got a real Hitchcockian feel to it. It's got a real kind of like his fingerprints are all over it sort of thing. I think the problem with Frenzy, like I mentioned, is that it's a really good movie in general. It's a good thriller. It's a, especially it's a good kind of like of those very seventies kind of like sexual kind of thrillers, like a kind of almost Brian De Palma kind of thing that he would go on to kind of like make it very much his own thing. It's got that, sexual politics element to it and that kind of like overt violence to it which is really interesting to see a director like Hitchcock that started in the silent era kind of experimenting with what else he could do is very interesting but I think it is not one of his best it's well worth seeing it's an interesting kind of film to look at from the perspective of like a career well lived it's a good like late era film for Hitchcock but it's not to the standard that you'd expect so in the same way that you should go into Solaris expecting to be immersed in the film you should go into Frenzy not expecting a rear window not expecting a vertigo it's not quite up there and I think relies a little bit too heavily on the shock value of the gore gore's the wrong word but of the violence and of the kind of sexual imagery that it that you kind of get this weird sense that Hitchcock was kind of reveling in like he had to be very subtle with it in all of his other films and this time he's like oh fuck it, let's just do it, let's go crazy. At its best, it feels like Hitchcock at its best, but at its worst, it feels like somebody imitating Alfred Hitchcock, if that makes sense. It's interesting when that happens, though. I always like, you know, you, you see these directors and then they start to move into the time period of the people yeah. they've inspired. And then it's kind of like, I can still mix it with these guys and I can still do that. It's, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned De Palma and things and that's interesting. And, mm. and yeah, you do get the feeling you know, senses were Hitchcock's bane for so long. He was just like, yeah, I'm going to have fun with this. It's, it's pretty, mm. pretty cool. But then it, it's the age old question, isn't it? You know, 
do those limits on filmmakers make them better filmmakers in their earlier days? Um, you know, the shark from Jaws sort of thing. It's it's interesting one. But no, I've not seen that. But yeah, I, I fancy fancy look at Hitchcock, Hitchcock sorry, Unbound. It's, um, it's also really, uh, I agree with you entirely, Sam. Uh, it is a good film, but you do, you can't help judging it with the rest of his work. But it's also quite interesting just as a, a, a glimpse of uh, not very long ago London and a, an area of London because Covent Garden is can still play that mise-en-scene of like it's quite scummy dodgy area where these sorts of things can happen and now of course it's completely not like that at all <laughs> <laughs> it is it, that's, I mean that is another great thing because this is the first because obviously Hitchcock started off making films in London and then he went off and made films in America um, and then this is the first film that I think since like the 1930s this was the first one that he made back in the UK didn't he do um the man who knew too much wasn't that in London? Oh yes, there was scenes of that that were filmed in London. God, way to call me out on my Hitchcock knowledge, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, like a right, like a right loser. Um, <laughs> but it is. I remember because I watched this film. One of my um, one of my lockdown projects was trying to watch all of the Alfred Hitchcock films, um, and it was really fun watching this one and kind of being like, "Oh, I vaguely recognise this area of London. That was really fun. They're on the Thames, and there's that woman's boobs. Great, you know." <laughs> It was uh, a lot of fun. Oh, lockdown. <laughs> uh, <laughs> remember those good old days when that's all we had to worry about? <laughs> Bill, where are we going next? Uh, we are going into back into outer space. Um, I chose Silent Running, which is directed by Douglas Trumbull. And he is um, the special effects maestro behind Blade Runner 2001, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the Star Trek The Motion Picture. So... He knew how to build a spaceship, gents. Yeah, Elon Musk can shut it. So, yeah, the, the plot of the film is, in the near future, all plant life on Earth has died out and biodomes in outer space are attempting to regrow it. Um, when he's ordered to destroy his biodome due to government cutbacks, an astronaut gardener decides to fly off with his forest into the far reaches of space. Um, by the way, it stars Bruce Dern. It's, it's nothing like um, Solaris, but... It is very, very sedate, a very sedate, methodical sci-fi. It's almost, there are scenes where it's almost like watching a garden grow, but it's no less enjoyable because of that. It does, <laughs> it does settle into this, this routine and you do, you do get it, it, that, that feeling of how mundane an existence flying out into space must be. Um, it wears its environmental concerns very much on its sleeves uh, but it does it does make you consider nature and its importance. Um, I think Bruce Dern's quite touching um, affection for his for his plants and the wildlife it, it does get to you, even though he has gone slightly insane. And I have to say that's that's something from the very off. You you start to notice that the guy is obviously unhinged before it all kicks off, and I won't ruin um, what he does in order to to escape. But um, yeah, the things he does, he, he is a he is a, a bad man, um, and. I don't think he can defend his actions just because he doesn't want his plants to die. It does. It does speak out against you know this this do do um, people that are like kind of you know say now like extinction rebellion. Are you going too far in the to to save a tree sort of thing? And I think this speaks from it's coming just off the back of the sixties, obviously hippie culture, environmental concerns. You know, people chaining themselves to trees, and that's what this is really much leaning into. Um, and it doesn't seek to judge. Um, it just it just presents it. Bruce Dern is suitably odd. He's perfectly cast as this slightly unhinged um, madman, uh, mad hippie out in space. Early on, he's established as an introvert, but there's a gradual development of him 
which is really nice to see of him beginning to miss people. Um, and this is shown really clearly in a scene where he tries to teach his silent robot helper drones how to play poker. Um, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite strange, but it's also quite touching. I have to say the drones themselves, they're, they're wonderful creations. Um, they're completely silent, but they're really unshowy. Um, you know, they, they are robots, but we don't, we, don't, we don't get to know that much about them. But you kind of see their personalities come through in really, really subtle ways. Um, but one scene that struck me was uh, one of the drones <laughs> tapping its foot slightly as it awaits further instructions. And I, I just thought that was really great. And I think the influence they've had on R2-D2 and Star Wars droids, um, really, really clear. Like, I don't, you've not got R2-D2 without this film. Um, I don't think you've got Star Wars without this film because it, it um, shows the sort of used, lived-in galaxy before George Lucas did it as well. Everything's a bit scuffed. They've been out there for a little while. You know, they, they, they are just, just regular blokes just trying to get their jobs done. There is this sort of, like, mercantile feel to it but yeah i i, I did enjoy it I, 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 it's i suppose it maybe is a little over long um it maybe goes too navel gazing it maybe is a little bit too obvious but i think the world was clearly established um and it was it was quite haunting and i think the ending as well suitably haunting which i think you need for a sci-fi but yeah i, I think i mainly picked this one because of the obvious um influences it, it had on uh, on latter sci-fis especially you know coming into the stuff in the 80s as well you can see Blade Runner in there as well and and I just think it's it's an interesting one is you know in the start of the 70s coming out of the 60s we've gone from this mad crazy sci-fis into this is you know big budget American film and it was basically about the fact that we can't keep chopping down trees um so yeah that is that is silent running um and yeah if you if you like your sci-fis I do think you should you should watch it because it the influences are quite clear Watched it a few years ago, yeah. I, I can remember not very much about it. I think I watched it too late at night. But yeah, I remember feeling like this is more sedate than I was expecting. Um, but it is really charming, and I it deserves a rewatch. I remember, I think I had a similar thing. I watched it quite a while ago um, and was almost expect yeah expecting it to be really quite overblown. And I think I quite enjoyed the quite peaceful navel gazingness of it and i think up until i remember the first time i watched silent running i only knew bruce stern as old bruce stern so seeing young bruce stern i was like oh shit young bruce stern come on let's have it like yeah it's kind of kind of uh, shocking isn't it yeah so i mean that kept me going for quite a while anyways but yeah i remember (laughs) really having a good time with how sort of like yeah it hit me at just the right time where i was like this is the kind of sci-fi i'm in the mood for let's have it brilliant right well let's Let's talk about my second film now. So I'm going to talk about Aguirre, Wrath of God, which is an epic historical drama from uh, Germany and the legendary director Werner Herzog, only his third feature-length film. It stars the uh, equally legendary Klaus Kinski as maniacal Spanish soldier Aguirre, who leads a group of conquistadors down the Amazon River in South America in pursuit of the legendary city of gold, El Dorado. Uh, And gradually the group become beset with difficulties, the landscape proves much too harsh for them, and they slowly begin to descend into factional infighting, jealousy, disease and madness. The film is a a searing portrait of the the ambitious follies and delusional conquests that have gripped so many in in the past and uh, and as we're still seeing in the in the present day 
there are sporadic touches of grim humor throughout, which I didn't realize like until recent viewing that I, you know, actually there are, there is, it's quite funny in parts. Um, but it, it's a film that's sort of dense with multiple layers regarding politics and the machinations of power, social hierarchy, religious motivations, colonialism, and yeah, all too human foibles of greed and obsession. And these kind of these foibles are mirrored by the the reckless determinism of Werner Herzog himself in completing the film, considering the these feverish extremes of the shoot in the Peruvian rainforest and around uh, Machu Picchu. I mean, at times, it, it, Herzog's direction feels like one of his documentaries. There's this the shaky camera work that's taking you right into the faces of the struggling conquistadors and their slaves as they wade through these awful swamps and contend with the tumult of the river. I mean, it, it's it, it's one of those films that you think, how on earth did he actually manage to, to make it? And it has this kind of myths around it now because of the conflicts between Herzog and, and Klaus Kinski. And, and this was the first of what would be five excellent films together. Um, apparently from the beginning of the production, so Herzog and Kinski, they were kind of argued about the way in which Aguirre was to be portrayed. So Kinski wanted to play a wild, ranting madman, but Herzog wanted something that was going to be a bit quieter, more subtle. Um, so apparently in order to get the performance that he desired, before each shot, Herzog would deliberately infuriate Kinski, and so, and then wait for <laughs> wait for Kinski's anger to burn itself out, and then Herzog. Such a risky game. <laughs> and then oh. only then would Herzog roll the camera. Um, and apparently, yes, very risky indeed, because apparently, on at one on one occasion, Kinski was found himself being very annoyed by uh, the crew who were playing cards nearby, and he ended up just firing gunshots at it, um, blowing the tip off one extra's finger. Oh gosh. Um, uh, after that, wow. Kinski then decided to leave the jungle um, because Herzog wouldn't wouldn't fire someone, um, and only changed his mind after Herzog threatened to shoot first Kinski and then himself. <laughs> so it gives you a sense of just what the uh... oh, to be on on that production meeting. <laughs> My God! Um, you're gonna do what, Werner? Sorry, you're gonna do what? I mean, but that's it. I mean, Kinski gives. I think it's what probably his finest performance as, as the power hungry Aguirre. I mean, he's acting more with his deranged facial expressions than anything else. He's lurching around as if completely drunk, and then, of course, in the kind of haunting final scene on this monkey-infested raft, it's just quite wonderful. And I mean, it's, that's just one of many really unforgettable images. So I think most of all, the the astonishing opening shot of the side of the cliff, and it's that's the camera's slowly focusing in through the mist on the group threading their way down it perfectly married to uh, the score by the german uh cosmic band uh, pop over which is really ethereal really hypnotic score so i mean i just finished by saying my sort of first foray with this film was aged about sort of 17 or 18 and i remember coming home quite drunk from a night out probably uh, with with the two of you, I'd have thought uh, to find my dad starting to watch the film on DVD, and I'd never heard of it before. And I sort of remember sitting down on the sofa, and for the next ninety minutes, allowed the film to sort of kind of permeate through me as I sort of drifted in and out of my drunkenness. And I think thereafter, I could only really remember—I could barely remember anything about it, apart from some of the striking images and the haunting nature of it. Um, and that kind of stayed with me for about five years. I didn't watch it again. I've since rewatched it loads of times, obviously in a sober state, and it but it never fails to kind of keep that distance from it. I don't feel overly familiar to it in any way. It still remains much retains a lot of its kind of potency, um, and yeah, it's certainly in in my top ten favorite films of all time. So that's Aguirre, Wrath of God. 
you know it's amazing i'm pretty sure my first experience with the queer wrath of god was was drunk yeah i'm yep. pretty sure <laughs> i'm pretty sure i the um the brinmore jones library at the university of hull had a pretty solid dvd collection and i'm pretty sure i rented it whilst i was at uni and then came back from a night out and was like do you know what now's the time for this and watched a queer in a really like uh, uh, am i klaus kinski kind of state so <laughs> weird that we've all had that yeah well i thing. think i think i was exposed to it you either told me to watch it or i watched it with you mike um and i was very drunk when i watched it at uni and yeah i've got some thing i've since rewatched it but i think because it's so visceral and crazy and just because kinski's face is just unique and like kind of this Oh, it, it just looks it looks like something someone's designed rather than he yeah. was just born. You know, he looks like an almost almost classic movie monster sort of thing. Um it it, 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 it does look you. like Frankenstein's yeah. monster. And it, it's it's, crazy. it just it haunts you and then you get these images and even though yeah, I've seen the film a few times, you I, when I'm thinking about it now as you were talking to it, there's just images. There's just images that come to you um totally um disconnected from the plot itself and that end scene with the monkeys on the raft, it's... like, oh my goodness me, goodness me. It's also amazing mm. that, like, mm. I remember watching that movie, maybe the second time after I'd sobered up, um, but I remember, like, before I even knew all those stories about Kinski and Herzog and their kind of, like, all those on-set stories, you can still get that sense in the film that you're like, this looks like a horrendous time. I think everyone looks like they're at the end of their tether and Klaus Kinski looks like he's going to explode at any moment. It's just amazing to, like have gone through all that but still like and have managed to have captured it on screen it's like when you watch apocalypse now and you can get that sense yeah. that you're like gosh everyone's having an absolutely pesh time when they're doing this and I, I think, think we've established haven't we we really enjoy films oh really, yeah like, creaky chair really enjoys films if you can tell people have worked very hard and had a terrible southern, time southern comfort like, terrible time got to suffer for your art yeah suffer, suffer for the art that's exactly absolutely. it you know lighthouse is one of the favorites everyone looked like they were having a terrible time yeah. getting eating dirt and getting spray thrown all of them you know that's what we like we like them suffering and yeah. i think everyone on a gear that's... i don't think anyone came off that I was like how is the shoot today love oh it was a tough one i got uh, my yeah my finger got shot john got his fingertip <laughs> blown off uh yeah but so I'm, I'm doing pretty good actually yeah could, could be could be could be john you know bloody could be a lot worse I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Apocalypse Now. I mean, I think Francis Ford Coppola has said that he wouldn't have made that film had it not been for Aguirre, because you can definitely see the influence on it. (laughs) Such a scary thought that Francis Ford Coppola watched Aguirre and was like, I can make that, but worse. I can make that experience, (laughs) but like so much worse for so many. Marlon Brando, have you seen Aguirre? Good, don't watch it, because I've I've got an idea. (laughs) All this needs is a drugged up Dennis Hopper. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Vietnam War, amazing. This film writes its bloody self. So we're going to the third films now. So obviously you guys have covered two really beautiful, cerebral and honestly important sci-fi movies. So I thought I would cover another equally important sci-fi movie and that's um, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is the fourth sequel to the very popular Charlton Heston film of 1968, Planet of the Apes. Uh, in a series of films that get progressively worse and worse named as they go on. Mouthier and Mouthier. Um, obviously, because the other two I've talked about, Louis Brunel and Alfred Hitchcock, I had a quick look at the director of this and was very much prepared to do a bit of a kind of poo-poo on his career. But the director of this film, J. Lee Thompson, has actually had a pretty good run of films before and after Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Dude made The Guns of Navarone, Cape Fear, the Gregory Peck, and um, 
Robert Mitchum, Cape Fear, obviously, not the one that Martin Scorsese made. Um, uh, Cape Fear, Ice Cold in Alex, film that we've talked about on this pod before. Um, the <laughs> sequel to this film, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And of course, he made Death Wish for the crackdown. Um, so, you know... He's good at fours. He's good at fours. Yeah, he's really, really good. <laughs> they saw this and were like, do you know what? Charles Bronson, he's, what, he's who we need for Death Wish for the crackdown. So this is... Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is the fourth film um, after Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I have an incredible soft spot for these original five movies about the Planet of the Apes franchise. I've just got such a weird place in my heart for them, even though they are incredibly varying in quality. Um, So what's the plot for the fourth film? And do I need to have seen all the three films that precede it to make sense of it? In answer to the second question, you don't really need to have seen the four films before it. All of the Apes movies that have preceded this almost kind of work within their own bubble of being a Planet of the Apes movie. The second one, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, basically remakes the first one, but with a weird sort of nuclear war effort and dystopian mutated humans element to it. The third one is its own thing entirely. And this fourth one is, again, as long as you're aware of the idea that like some of the apes can walk and talk, you're going to have a great time. Also, you know, it's entirely up to you how valuable your time is. You can watch all of them if you want, but how important to your time? What else have you got on, I suppose? Watch the first two, skip the third. Michael, uh, okay. <laughs> we're not get, we, don't, we don't have time to argue about <laughs> the, get... the way in which you should watch all of the Planet of the Apes. Is there any room for the Mark Wahlberg version? Um, let me just check. No, we've got no room for the Mark Wahlberg <laughs> okay. version, especially after I, sla- I slated him on that Uncharted episode. So the plot for Con- Conquest of... Oh, it's so mal... I'm going to just call it Conquest from now on. The plot for Conquest... In a futuristic world that has embraced ape slavery, Caesar, the son of the late simians Cornelius and Zera. Cornelius and Zera are the original apes from the first Planet of the Apes movie that do the escape from the Planet of the Apes in the third movie, just to fill you in. Um, So Caesar surfaces after almost 20 years of hiding out from the authorities and prepares for a slave revolt against humanity. So Caesar, the kind of main ape this film focuses on, is played by Roddy McDowell. Um, It was a busy, busy 1972 Roddy McDowell. Obviously, you mentioned earlier Poseidon Adventure. He was in that this year, as well as a film starring Paul Newman called The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. And Roddy McDowell is arguably the hairy heart and simian soul of the Apes franchises. Um, He plays Caesar in this one, who is the son of Cornelius and Dr. Zero from the previous Apes films, who, Cornelius, was played by Roddy McDowell in the first three Planet of the Apes movies. So here he is, Roddy McDowell, flexing his ape acting muscles by playing his own son. Oh, so it's like a time um, loop sort of thing. I'm with you. This is cool. No, they just couldn't, oh, right, probably okay. couldn't afford another actor that wanted to wear that outrageous makeup. They, Roddy McDowell was like, do you know what? I've, I've worn that ape makeup for three films now, so I may as well do a fourth <laughs> one. The, the, this one, I, I have a particular fondness for. It's a very overly wrought kind of metaphor about fascism, essentially. Even all the outf- all the uniforms that are worn by the humans who are training these apes and like putting them into slavery are literally the, the, the playbook of how to look like a Nazi when you're making a film. It's very, very obvious, the kind of metaphor they're making. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a well put together metaphor that does work. You kind of follow Caesar as all these apes are getting abused and getting kind of downtrodden by these evil humans. They're being sold at markets. They're they're being 
trained to do menial jobs for these very rich upper crust humans until eventually the apes all revolt. They do a conquest of the planet of the apes. So the film is a very kind of obvious metaphor for what it's going for, but the metaphor does work. And Roddy McDowell, as Caesar, manages to convey these ape characters with that what looks like incredibly tough makeup to have to wear, these full like simian ape suits all the time. He does an incredibly human job with it. He's so well, he, he acts it so fantastically and is just the real emotional heart and soul of this movie. Like I said, I don't think it's a movie that necessarily is going to do much for many people that haven't got such a weird fondness for the Planet of the Apes movies. Um, but I think it is genuinely one of the best of the sequels that they did. And for a fourth movie in any franchise to be as well put together as this one is, I'm pretty pleased with it. Um, also, this one had the lowest budget of all of the Planet of the Apes movies. If you can imagine, if anyone's seen Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which looks like it was made on about 45p, um, they do a really great job. They All the scenes of like this dystopian Los Angeles of the not-too-distant future. I didn't check, actually. Maybe this was in 2022 as well. Um, but it's just a very well-realised world, which I think is what you need for especially a ridiculous kind of ape ape-centric sci-fi movie it's a very well realized very kind of believable world in this ridiculous kind of setup although who knows 2022 has given us a lot so maybe 2023 is going to be apes learning to talk and i've got a question like can you clear up the timeline for me so is this a prequel and a sequel technically it is a prequel and a sequel because what happens at the end of the second movie resets the timeline to go back to before the first movie happens. Right. And then, so then this world is like developing into the world. That so Charles this is like, what the fuck? Yeah. So this yeah. is, so the third, fourth and fifth movies are building towards going back to the start of the first movie. That's pretty clever. That's so cool. if you think about it, Bill, it's actually a very logical timeline they've set up for us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am impressed. I so am the fourth impressed. movie is actually the second movie if you watch them chronologically. Blowing my mind. Blowing my mind. Like, we'll have to do an entire podcast about the order in which to watch these films. Yep, I'll do my own. It- have you ever watched them in the actual order? Uh no, I feel like I've watched them all once through. I don't necessarily need to. <laughs> the next Creaky Chair yeah. Festival, that's what we should do. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. When we do our Planet of the, when we do our original Planet of the Apes series special, I'll watch all of them in chronological order and give you a blow by blow of Caesar, Cornelius, Doctor Zera, Doctor Zaius, Charles. I'll give, you, I'll give you the whole whole rundown. I'll wear my Planet of the Apes t shirt. I want to watch them all again now. I haven't seen them in years. I think I think just to date these, I think I first watched them when I was studying for my A levels. So I've got a really specific memory of like when you weren't studying. Actually, yeah. Why did I even pretend that like I watched Planet of the Apes movies rather than studying for my media studies degree? Um, a level. That's what I was doing. And that's why you're doing a film podcast, not on a TV presenter. Yeah. So now you're sat here in your thirties. Oh. Bill, what are you going next for your third and final film? <laughs> so I've chosen um, the Way of the Dragon, which was. Um, Directed and starred Bruce Lee. Directed by and starred Bruce Lee. Um, so to give this some context, this was Bruce Lee's like attempt to get himself back to Hollywood. So he'd obviously done Cato in the Green Hornet, um, and then and then that that got cancelled, and he, he went back and he, he wanted to kind of break in and, and show them that he could he could basically headline a an action flick. So he made this um, film to showcase himself. 
the plot um, is a man visits his relatives in Italy and has to defend their restaurant from the gangsters that are threatening them. Very, very much uh, part of the course there. But this is a proper Bruce Lee joint. So the man produced, wrote, directed, starred in, and played the drums on the soundtrack. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the drums on the soundtrack are pretty good. So it, it was really him saying, obviously as well, I've neglected to mention, he definitely choreographed, you know, choreographed the own uh, fights, and he definitely did his own stunts. I think that is beyond it. We can't, we can't accuse him of uh, shaking on that. But yeah, this really showcases his talents, and it's also, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to be a Bruce Lee expert, but I've seen a lot of his films. It, it, it showcases something he's not necessarily known for, which is his his love of comedy. Um, and and this is a heavily influence on on Jackie Chan because unlike his other films and especially like Enter the Dragon, which is kind of like this James Bondian thing, isn't it? It's this very much spy sort of thing. This feels closer to what um, Lee Lee kind of really wanted to make because he did make it, and it's cool because in the early fights, it establishes um, Tang Lung, who is is Bruce Lee, as this cocky git he's a bit of a cocky guy he's beating up people and then sitting on them folding his arms waiting for the next ones and it's silly and it's really fun um and it's different to jackie chan's sort of shtick which was you know the the clumsiness at times and trapping his hand but it bruce lee makes it work for himself he, his cockiness makes it funny um and towards the end when he does get a little bit more um in above his head it makes it genuinely um quite quite funny when he's actually facing off against guys that can handle themselves um, and steadily the film does get more brutal. So it is quite a little bit disjointed between the first half and the second half. The first half is quite this this zany comedy as he gets in scraps and tries to defend these, this restaurant from the, the goons in Italy. But it does get more brutal. It culminates in the real reason I picked it, though, because at the end, Bruce Lee fights Chuck Norris in a coliseum in front of a cat. And... It is absolutely incredible. I've rewatched it and I remembered this scene and I've tried to think about what it's maybe trying to say, but there's this cute kitten and it's just wandering around um, wow. and it starts watching them. And then in between the fight, it keeps cutting back to the cat's reaction. I, I don't know why it works, man. It works. I, I, I think maybe because the fight is so brutal and you're watching these two guys really going at each other bruce lee was like i need to soften this nice. a bit what can i do let's just put some cutaways of a cat in there just to be like look the world's a nice place still just chill out guys there's a cute cat look bang we're watching bruce lee break chuck norris's arm again you know we need we need it sort of tempered with a cat but it's incredible you you have these two legends facing off um and it starts really surreally as well because they approach each other um, they slowly size each other up, classic sort of Western sizing each other up. And then they start, they start, they take off their, their clothes, neatly fold them. And then they both start doing a warm up and stretching really carefully. And the, it lingers on this scene for ages, but I really like it because you've kind of got these two guys that obviously respect each other loads. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to just jump in and start fighting. I need to stretch. I'm going to pull something. And it's great. The fight itself is shot in, in really long takes, so you can just admire the skill and choreography. There's no quick cuts. It, it, it's really clear, astoundingly clear, that you're watching two great actual kung fu masters rather than actors. There isn't, there isn't a, it's not a stunt person he's fighting. This is, this is a guy that can absolutely go toe-to-toe, and all the while, a cat's watching them. Uh, it's 
brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. The fight is brutal. There's funny bits. At one point, um, <laughs> Chuck Norris absolutely smashes Bruce Lee to the floor and then and then does a mocking Terminator 2 T-1000 hand gesture at him. Bruce Lee then stands up, trades some more fights, and then rips off a load of Chuck Norris's quite copious amounts of um, chest hair and then casually blows them from his fist. All the while, the cat is watching nonplussed. It's great. It ends, I won't ruin the ending to the fight, but it ends in this kind of strange way as well. Quite, I don't know, it seems quite realistic and it doesn't end with just this knockout killer blow. It's more of this war of attrition and it's it's fantastic. But yeah, I think for that reason, oh. it's my favourite Bruce Lee film um, just because of this this fight at the end, you know, the, the setting, the way it's shot as well. There's, there's one bit which is shot from um, Chuck Norris's POV where you're literally getting smashed in the face by Bruce Lee's foot, which is just... Even I was watching it on a laptop, um, and it was quite quite visceral. It's not something you ever want to happen to you. Um, is Bruce Lee roundhousing you in the face? And um, I, I think he, your nose is a bit out of joint. That must be what that is. Yeah, yeah, I feel it came through. It actually smashed through my laptop screen. Um, for kung fu experts out there, he actually invented a kick during this sequence called the oblique kick. I don't know exactly which one it was, but it looked pretty painful. Whoa. So yeah, my favorite Bruce Lee film, uh, Way of the Dragon. And it features a cat as well. I mean, even before you mentioned that there was a cat, I was already pretty keen to check this one out. But that I, I'm, I've never been more keen. I might have to leave this podcast recording early just to go and watch that cat fight scene because that's the most intriguing <laughs> prospect I've ever thought about. Proper cat fight. <laughs> lol, lol, lol. Oh, you set yourself up for a joke. Great. <laughs> nice one. Okay, right. Well, uh, I shall round things out then on... A, well, on a disgraceful low, I think. Um, so I, I don't think uh, we could overlook uh, the film Pink Flamingos, uh, the exploitation comedy from the notorious John Waters, cemented in cinematic legend as one of, if not pr- perhaps the most controversial film ever. Uh, it's depraved, it's disgusting, it's perverted in the most brilliant ways. Uh, it's a fantastic piece of provocative art. Um it's the first in what John Waters called his trash trilogy, and it stars the countercultural icon Divine as a criminal who goes by the name of Babs Johnson uh, and is proud of her reputation as the filthiest person alive. I am not going to try and explain the plot or describe the sorts of things the film covers, um, but whatever depraved things that you can think of, chances are they will be in or surpassed by this film. Um, Waters is the master of, kind of gross out boundary pushing trying to see how far he can push it and divine is his perfect foil in this endeavor this cinema I've probably never seen anything like her before and very has seen very little like her since um and just when you think it can't go any lower uh, it proves you wrong and culminates in the very famous final scene uh, involving dog turds uh, which is that where your hatred of dogs came from michael <laughs> Long predated that. <laughs> in terms of filmmaking technique, I mean, it does showcase this kind of quite unique and distinctive style. So it was made on a shoestring budget of $10,000. So it's very homemade. It's quite kitsch. It's got scratchy editing. But it's got this kind of brash color palettes, loads of paint and makeup. It's inspired by the kind of notorious Italian exploitation documentaries known as Mondo films. Um, so it has got this very kind of unique style to it. It became an instant underground hit on its release, and it would be banned for many years. It became a, a midnight movie staple, and it's sort of it is this kind of paradigmatic cult classic. It's 
you know, it's celebrating outsider culture, degeneracy, trailer trash, and being sort of proudly exhibitionist and wild. So in that sense, it's highly influential, groundbreaking in many ways, and magnificent in all its debauched glory. Uh, so that's uh, Pink Flamingos, 50 years old, and yet still, I mean, I watched this for the first time two or three years ago, and uh yeah I, I mean i don't shock easily but i was i was you know you can't watch it and be you can watch it you'll definitely you can watch it and be kind of angered or um, you find it distasteful and be you know, like what on earth is this about but i don't think you could ever watch it and be bored or blasé about what's on screen i must admit this is a film that i've not seen but i'm very keen to do so i think i've only seen odds and ends of it i've not sat through the whole experience but i feel like it's something that I need to do for my for myself and for Divine more than anyone else, you know. This is yet another example of a film that I'm sure Michael would like to make me watch at some point, and probably will, but I've not dared to watch, and I'll never dare to watch alone. So, yeah, I can look forward to being put through this. <laughs> the next, I mean, this could be the premiere film of the next Creaky Chair film I, festival. I, I wouldn't you know? be surprised. Mm. This, The Baby... It, it, oh... <sighs> Planet of the Apes. And then, yeah. Perfect, yeah. Could, we just, right. could, we, could we just watch the last 20 minutes of Way of the Dragon just to get some, you know, to palate cleanser after that? That'll be nice. We'll watch that in between each one. <laughs> so that'll be just a perennial staple in between each film. But I, I would say it is, you know, you've got a certain respect for him for just setting out and going, right, I'm just going to. I'm going to make something unpalatable. It's a very brave decision for a filmmaker, isn't yeah. it? Just going right. I'm going to I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something that is going to get slated, going to get absolutely slated, and going to get slated for having no artistic endeavor as well, isn't it? You know, it's mm. it's it is it is quite brave. It's almost like I don't know, like putting his ego aside at some point. There, it's because it, you know you do say there's some there's some good techniques in there. It does have thought behind it and he has proven himself to be a very canny filmmaker so you do you do tend to the thing is like he is he is really considering his art it's just it's not going to be to everyone's taste it's probably not even to his own taste is it (laughs) well i think was he called it was the the catchphrase for the film so it's an exercise in in bad taste wasn't it i mean so it's it's conscious (laughs) it's conscious of it yeah I can't. So I think, yeah, I think it's to be commended. But then I kind of admire that that's sort of the thing that he's carried out throughout his whole career. But I, I think I sent a picture to it of you a, a while ago where he was doing the programming for some film festival, and he put on a put on a double bill of um, Salo and uh, Gaspar Noé's climax, like back to back. And I just love that even when programming films, he's like, "How can I really make people have a pesh time?" Which... <laughs> Like we, like we mentioned with uh, Aguirre, is what we look for from a film is somebody that we, wants we people do, to struggle. <laughs> Excellent, right? Well, there we go. Um, before we before we wrap up, are there any films, any others that you want to throw in just very quickly that you sort of you know you would also highlight as being well worth seeking out on this their fiftieth year? The, the the few that kind of came to me whilst I was doing some research that didn't quite make the cut: um, Cries and Whispers, Ingmar Bergman film. Um, it's pretty great. Uh, the Harder They Come by uh, Perry Hensel. It's pretty great. Oh, yeah. Also, I mentioned him earlier, obviously, but um, Brian De Palma's Sisters is pretty great. Um, and a film that have we that Michael introduced to Bill and I at a Creaky Chair Film Festival early 2020, I think. The short film The Telephone Box by Antonio Marcelo is from 1972 as well. So it's just a, a banging year all round, really. Yeah, yeah. La Cabina, fantastic. If you haven't watched it, 
I think it'll be on YouTube. Mm. Go and find it. It's about half an hour long. It's uh, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I, I don't know. Did we? Did we? Did you mention obviously Deliverance? Um, don't think we intro. have. No, don't think yeah, we have. Obviously, mentioned fantastic, fantastic film. Um, would have chosen it, but again, I think I, I think it's good to, to go and put these more hidden hidden gems there. Um, also, there's the Getaway with uh, Steve McQueen, which is a, a really good oh, example yeah, of, of like sort of a, a bit more of the birth of the modern action genre, and, and Steve McQueen's excellent in it. Um, was did we mention Last House on the Left? Is that that was nice? No. We did not. No, we did talk about it on our most disturbing films. But yes, of course. Yes, yeah. yes. So maybe yeah. But of course we can't. Uh, yeah, um, very, 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 very disturbing film. Um, wouldn't say enjoyable, but that's <laughs> some of the. You know, he's talking about Pink Flamingo. So, um, but yeah, though, it was a banger year, banger year for yeah, films. Yeah, I mean, I just throw into the mix uh, a couple of British horror films. So. Uh, first called Tales from the Crypt, which is a, an anthology film made in the style of the Ealing classic Dead of Night, uh, made by Amicus, the Amicus Studio, which is based in Shepparton. It was kind of a rival to Hammer Horror in the 60s and 70s, used a lot of the same actors, uh, and they specialised in these anthology films. This is directed by Freddie Francis, who's a kind of stalwart British film. It's about five strangers. They they visit this old catacombs and they there's this crypt keeper there who kind of imprisons them and makes each of them in turn relive the manner of their death. So it's got these five stories. They've all they're all got this devious charm and gothic eeriness to them. And there's some very gruesome moments and, and jump scares. Um, and there's a standout one. Peter Cushing is in one of the one of the vignette, one of the episodes, and he's he's typically brilliant in it. Um, oh, I would also so yeah, if you enjoy kind of hammer horror then you'll definitely have fun with with that with that film and on the subject of hammer i quickly want to mention dracula ad 1972 which is about christopher lee being resurrected in 70s london to prey upon a group of chelsea hippies um it is it is dreadful but it's kind of one of hammer's sort of last gasps of trying to do something kind of inventive with that's something that's by this point very stale and very tired <laughs> it's 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 so funny though man you got johnny alucard and then like peter cushing is like i don't know is he a reincarnation or great great grandson of van helsing or something? it's just great uh-huh. seeing the two legends just with all these hippies it's just so weird <laughs> and christopher lee just clearly does not want to be there no <laughs> he's really got the disinterested boredom the aloof boredom of the count down to a two at that point yeah I mean, that's, that's all he needs to do is to bring it to life. So why, 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 why try harder? You know, his disdain for the hippies though sh- shines through quite, quite well. So you do believe that. You do believe he wants to kill them all. God bless you, Christopher Lee. <laughs> right. Well, there we go. Thank you very much, Dee, for listening. That is uh, a vast array of wonderful films for you to check out over the course of this next year. Um, thank you for listening to our fiftieth episode. Uh, here's to fifty more. Um, and yeah, in a uh, our next episode will be a, a bonus episode looking at Batman in film throughout uh, across the decades. Uh, that's going to be very much in Bill and Sam's wheelhouse. I'm not going to have very much to offer, but uh, apart from body shaming pr- Chris O'Donnell, yeah, apart from Chris O'Donnell bashing. <laughs> also, can I ask when we get to our hundredth episode, are we going to do our favourite films that are turning a hundred? That year, well, nineteen twenty-two. Of course, great, it's a great yeah. year for great year in science cinema. So yes, we must. All right, fantastic. I'll try to find Thanks a random cat watching a fight in uh, the silent era. We'll, we'll, well, yeah, see what we can do. They used to they lo- they loved cats back in the silent <laughs> era. It'd be fine. 
I mean, I just realised we're obviously not going to get to 100 episodes in 2022, so it will probably be 2023. 1923. Yeah, we really need to up our game. Oh, that was terrible. 1923, everyone just phoned it in, actually. So let's wait till 24. We'll wait till 24. Uh, Yeah, so uh, Creaky Chair Guide to Batman coming soon. Uh, Following that, we'll be bringing you our review of The Batman. So, yeah, look forward to that. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Sam. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Happy 50th birthday. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. If you like what you heard, it would mean the world to us if you told someone about the show. Tell them about it even if you hated it. Or even if you just felt really apathetic about it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad press. If you can leave us a review on wherever you're listening, that'd be amazing. And don't forget, we're on all of the social media things. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Bebo, MSN Messenger. And that's at Creaky Chair Pod on Instagram and at Creaky Chair on Twitter. And if you search Creaky Chair Film Podcast on Facebook, you'll find us there too. You can even email us at creakychairfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your essay about how much we were well out of order with the ice road.